Luke chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 10 through 17. Uh, If you've been in church very long, you know that you'll know this story, the feeding of the 5,000. Apart from the resurrection, it's the only miracle that's in all four of the Gospels. So as we're going through this passage here in Luke, uh, and you and I talk about something that happens at the feeding of the 5,000, and you don't see it in Luke, just know that it's in Matthew, Mark, or John. Okay, so I'll be referring to all four of them here and there. Some great lessons for all of us. Let's read it together. The reason I passed it up uh, when we were here a few weeks ago was to just have it as an introduction to the Lord's Supper, a sort of a foreshadowing, if you will, as the Lord feeds the people, we continue to feed on Christ through the Lord's Supper in a very uh, figurative and spiritual way. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. And the, uh, Jesus has sent out his 12, he gave them power, to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God and to heal uh, the diseases. And so on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away and go to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Let's make the emphasis in the right place. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. Taking five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. That's God's word. That's his revelation by the Spirit into Luke's life and Luke's pen has given it to us of this feeding of 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we go. Our Father, it's these most familiar passages that we often miss the deep truths that you give us in your word. As we casually think about knowing this story so well. Lord, I pray that you would Teach us this morning as Jesus taught his disciples in the crowd. That you would penetrate through the veneer of self-understanding of our own complacency. Help us to see the significance not only of this feeding, 
but as we also participate in union and communion together in this Lord's Supper. So be with us, Father, we pray. Fill your people with your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would convict those who are not your people yet in such a way that they might run to Christ, their only hope, their provision, the only one in whom satisfaction and contentment may be found. We ask these things that you might be glorified and we might be edified. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. So this passage is really straightforward, but it's chock full of uh, truths. And in particular, as we bring Matthew, Mark, and John uh, to bear up on it, uh, so in the midst, what Luke does in chapter 9 uh, is he answers two questions and he kind of does it back and forth and we see both questions being answered here. The first question is, who is Jesus? Uh, we see Herod asking, who is Jesus? We see uh, Jesus asking his disciples, uh, who does the world say I am? What's the word on the streets? And then he asks, who do you say I am? And then we see uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father himself speaking. This is my son, the Christ of God. And the other question, not only who is Jesus, but also what is a true disciple? And we've seen that the essence of becoming a true disciple is giving it all up, leaving your life behind for the sake of Christ. So those questions are being answered. Jesus is called here at the beginning, the 12 together, and then he sent them out. He sent them out with full authority, with power, uh, on a crusade to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal, really an extension of his ministry that he had already been uh, uh, participating in. They return emotionally and spiritually exhausted. And when they do, Jesus realizes that. They're telling him all that they had done there in verse 10. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. What we know is they got in a boat, they crossed the very northeast corner of Galilee uh, on the, onto the other side of the Jordan where Bethsaida is, a quiet place, a desolate place, a secluded place with a planned retreat. They report all that they taught and did on the campaign and people's lives were changed. Questions were being asked of who Jesus was, and they answered, they report that they answered as best they could. But what we learn from the other gospel writers is, as they're going across, the people kind of know where they're going, and the people are already there when they arrive in the boat. They're on the shore, so the planned retreat becomes an unplanned interruption uh, as the crowd is waiting for them as they get off uh, the boat onto the shore. They're unable to escape the crowds, and their debrief, uh, their retreat has been interrupted. Not a sought meeting with the crowd, but really not an unwanted intrusion, at least according to the Lord Jesus. They went ashore, we see there in verse 11, 
When the crowds learned it, they followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who needed healing. That's exactly what he gave the, the disciples power to do as they went out to preach the kingdom and to heal. Now they come back, having extended his ministry, and he is continuing his ministry now as he is uh, explaining and teaching them about the kingdom of God and healing their diseases. What he's doing, he's teaching the disciples uh, the importance of reaching out to these people. And he's teaching the people in the crowd that he is the only one. He alone can satisfy uh, their needs. You know, Jesus came to be the shepherd of the great shepherd of the sheep, come to lay down his life for his sheep, uh, to care for the sick, the brokenhearted, as Andy read in Isaiah 61, as Jesus said in the synagogue in Nazareth in Luke 4. Uh, I came to fulfill what Isaiah 61 said, to heal the brokenhearted, to heal the sick, the wandering, the lost. Came to locate and to retrieve the wandering sheep, the lost sheep. He knows the people in this crowd at Bethsaida. He knows them one by one. He knows each one of us one by one. He knows what's going on in your life here. And as the great shepherd, he's caring for you. He's the only one in whom you'll find satisfaction. Some are looking for relief, hope, uh, peace, restoration. And the Lord Jesus knows that He can provide them. He can open blind eyes. He can set the captives free. He can provide for you if you come to Him peace with God. And then as you live day by day, peace, the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind. Jesus has been teaching as he did his miracles that uh, if this is the Holy Spirit at work in my life, the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's teaching them in the, about the kingdom of God, his plans, his purposes, as he is sent, as he has come to accomplish our redemption and then to call on us to repent and believe so that he is the one, he is the only one to whom we can apply, we can come to, to find rest and salvation. So that's the situation. The crowd is waiting for them. They thought they were coming to rest for a little R&R, rest and recreation, and to rehearsing over the uh, events of the campaign. And the crowd is there, and the disciples propose a solution. Verse 12, the day began to wear away. And the twelve came and said, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place. As the day is winding down, the disciples become concerned. And they come to Christ in a sense and they say it's late, we're in the middle of nowhere uh, almost as if Jesus didn't know that, but we need to think about, these people need to think about where they're going to eat dinner and where they're going to sleep tonight. 
and I think just as a sidelight, the fact that food is available not too far away and lodging is available not too f- remotely, that we get the sense that the feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus performs here in this miracle is not primarily to satisfy their physical needs. It's one of the many signs that Jesus performs throughout his ministry to reveal his glory. And he's going to teach the disciples. Remember answering the question, what is a disciple? He's going to teach them about true hospitality. So they say, send, him, send them away. Verse 13, Jesus has a different proposition, but he said to them, you give them something to eat. Jesus is always training his disciples, and he'll not quit training his disciples. You give them something to eat. As you went on the campaign, you received hospitality. He told them to go into the houses and stay there as long as the people were amenable to them being there, but uh, to leave when they did not want, when they were not unwanted. You remember, shake the dust off your sandals and go to the next place. You received hospitality, he says, when you were in your, on your campaign. Now it's time for you to give hospitality. It's required of a disciple to be hospitable to the, those in need, to other folks. Hospitality, which they assume, these disciples here assume, they have no uh, means to provide. But deserted place or not, uh, supplies or not, Jesus expects his people to be hospitable. They respond to him when he says, you give them something to eat, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. There's a phrase, for all these people. Kind of a, uh, a highlight of the hopelessness of the situation. So you figure, you think about all these people being 5,000 men. Now, we don't know if it was just men or if it was women and children also, but there's at least 5,000. All these people, uh, that's quite a task that Jesus has given to these disciples when they've got nothing to provide for them. In, in John, uh, Philip is the one who is comes to Jesus and he says, essentially, this is going to cost a fortune. This would be eight months worth pay. 200 days wages. All these people just underscores this hopelessness, the inability of the disciples to provide. Jesus says to them, Go and find out what you've got. And Andrew returns with a little boy. Uh, here's five barley loaves and a couple of fish. But that's hardly a start. What's that going to matter to this large crowd is what he says. What we know that they don't know is that God will teach all things are possible. What is impossible with man is possible with God. But, though they haven't heard Jesus say that yet, at least not as we have recorded, they have seen impossible situations transformed. They have seen a man in a graveyard with many evil spirits in him and no one could do anything until Jesus comes across the lake and the man is restored. He's healed many. He's raised two from the 
dead. They've seen that. They've been given authority by Jesus to cast out demons and to heal diseases, but they hadn't seen anything quite like this, what it would require for this to take place. Their faith remains small. The faith remains tentative. Well, it's going to be very easy with the disciples and sympathize with them in their bewilderment, if you will. In their, you ever been bewildered in life? Have you re- ever come to the place to where you hear what God says, you know what He teaches in His Word, and you just say, "I got two fish, and that won't work." for this situation. Be sympathetic with the disciples. In the face of these kinds of things, if if we look to him, he'll supply our every need. He's promised he would do that. And so now, once again, the kingdom of God is about to intrude into the world of men Answering Herod's question, who is this I hear these things about? Maybe that's your question. Verse 14, there were 5,000 men. He says to his disciples, have them sit down in groups about 50 each. Okay, so we got 5,000 people. We got five loaves of bread. We got two fish. And so Jesus says, look, you 12, go out and arrange these people by 50s. Can you imagine? I mean, they go out and they begin to say, okay, uh, let's start numbering off one, two, three, to 50 and and sit in groups. It'd be easy to count them. That's how they know there's 5,000, I guess. But but you can, and they say, well, what are we going to, I don't know. He just said to do it, you know. Uh, Get these, get this, get them, marked off into groups of 50. Before he had empowered these 12 to preach and to heal, and now he's about to empower them to provide these people, all these people, the hospitality of a wonderful meal. Verse 15, they did so, and had them all sit down, And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set them before the crowd. The Lord Jesus looks to heaven, gives thanks, breaks the loaves. Here, hand these out. And he begins to give out And we lose somewhat in verse 16. We lose somewhat in the translation. He taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and he began to give out. He began to give them to the disciples to sit before the crowd. It's a giving and kept on giving Action verb. He's got five loaves and he gives to one and then he gives to another and then he gives to another and all 12 of them receive bread to pass out. And then Mark records, he divided the two fish among them all. And so we read that, you know, oh yeah, you broke a little crumb off here and a real crumb off there. How did you separate? How would you divide two fish among 500 people? Uh, Well, the Lord knows how to do it. So God just multiplies and he multiplies as Jesus is serving the disciples to serve the crowd. And verse 17 begins... And they all ate and were satisfied. They were full, filled to the fullness. Everyone was not only fed, but they were completely satisfied. 
filled completely by the bread and fish that Jesus has provided. Exactly what, that's what happened in the wilderness, right? What the Lord did with manna in the wilderness, which pointed forward to the fullness that the great shepherd would provide. And Jesus is showing himself here to be David's great shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Luke's record of this, when they, they sort them out into 50s, they sit down in the green grass. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me by the still waters. He restores my soul. The people ate and they were satisfied. So we got to stop here. Are you satisfied in Christ alone? Are you looking for other things to bring contentment and satisfaction? Or do you realize and do you live day by day knowing you will never be satisfied apart from Christ Jesus? But in Christ Jesus, your every need will be fulfilled abundantly beyond what you can ask or think or even imagine. And we're not talking about bank account. We're not talking about food in the pantry necessarily. He will provide your every need. Psalm 22, David's messianic psalm. Psalm, the afflicted, those who seek shall eat and be satisfied. You remember David said in 119th Psalm, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But when I was afflicted and I sought the Lord, I ate and was satisfied. Psalm 107.9, the Lord satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Contrast that to Solomon in Ecclesiastes when he begins to live under the sun. No view higher than what he can see in in the sky. All things are full of weariness, he says. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Says there's an evil under the sun. A man's soul is not satisfied with life's good things. Apart from Christ, there is no satisfaction. A man's soul is not satisfied with good things when he lives under the sun with no sense of uh, eternity, of no sense of the spiritual world past what we can see. Psalm 107, the Lord satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Only a longing soul for Christ, only one resting in Christ will be satisfied with the good things of this world in life. Jesus In Jesus, all our needs are supplied. God has created a longing in his creatures, in his people, for himself, a hunger, a desire in our souls to worship him. I think Pascal is the one who said we have a God-shaped vacuum in our heart. Only God can fill that vacuum, but it's a vacuum. It is sucking in all kinds of things from the world. None of them fit and fill the vacuum in your heart that only God can fill. Augustine, our hearts are restless. You made us for yourself and our hearts are restless 
till they find their rest in thee, in you. Or we could really go to Paul and say, my God will supply your every need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. The last half of uh, verse 17, and what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. I don't know what you think about or what you've thought about twelve baskets uh, of broken pieces. Remember the conversation earlier, we only have five loaves and two fish. This is impossible, Jesus. Well, Jesus says, go pick up what's left. By the way, each one of you 12 take a basket with you. And each of their baskets are filled. Um, There's more left over than what they started with. And it's an amazing miracle that according to the text is unable to be explained away. Although people try. I read of a few trying to explain it away this week. The, the, the one that I read explicitly uh, said that the, everybody came prepared, but they didn't want to share. And so the real miracle was these selfish people became sharers. What a great miracle, huh? It's so sad to minimize the Word of God, to desecrate our Lord Jesus in such a small way or a huge desecration and make Him into such a small God. God lavishes His grace upon His people. So with that, a couple of closing thoughts. We were trying to answer two questions. Who is Jesus and what is a disciple? Uh, made me think of, or I was reminded of as I studied this week, who is Jesus? Uh, many of you would know C.S. Lewis's uh, little ditty about out of mere Christianity. It said, a man who was merely a man and said the things Jesus said, did the things Jesus did, would either be a lunatic on the level of someone who claimed to be a poached egg, or he would be a demon or something worse. You can spit at him, call him a demon, or you can fall at his feet and worship him as Lord and God. But do not come to him with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He's not left that option open to us. He does not intend to. He's either what? Lord, lunatic, or a liar. There's no way he can be just a good moral teacher. I read a commentary this week said he was a great moral teacher. And the miracle was these people just became very generous instead of selfish. He's not just a mad man. He's not an ordinary man. Believe, believe in him as Lord and Savior or not, you have to admit he's not an ordinary man. He didn't come to help us have a better life or an easier life. He came as a king calling upon people to bow down before him to worship him. He came as a shepherd calling people into his fold to pastor, to shepherd them so that their life, so that your life might be turned into a God-glorifying instrument in the hands of a powerful and transforming Redeemer. He's able to do, as I said earlier, more abundantly than we ask or think. But at the same time, you'll turn away those who have no need. 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, he says, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you're not a Christian because you think that you're good enough, Christ has no offer for you. If you think you're a good person, you cannot be saved until you admit that you are helpless and hopeless before a righteous God, you cannot be saved. Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's a Savior who redeems all who come to Him. And then what is a disciple? Well, we, again, we can't judge these disciples too harshly to be slow about seeing the sufficiency and the adequacy of Christ. I mean, they're practical. It's getting late in the day. These folks have to eat dinner. They have to have a place to sleep. We're out in the middle of, essentially out in the middle of nowhere. So they're practical, but they don't have the compassion of Jesus. In these uncomfortable situations, we need to be sure that we're praying, Lord, give me the love and compassion of Jesus for the people. That word compassion is a powerful word, a word that most of us don't, most of us guys in particular don't get very, uh, don't uh, just, we, we have a hard time identifying with it. It's, it's uh, Jesus had compassion. It's a word that gets down into your gut and it moves you in such a way that not only, it's not pity, it is being driven for concern for others in such a way that we're going to do what it takes or what we can with the Lord's help to provide for their needs. We need to pray, Lord, give me the love and compassion of Jesus. Help us to remember the difference The disciples said, Lord, send them away. Jesus says, sit them down. And you and I, if you're a Christian, or we're trying to learn the same thing. We're in the same school of discipleship that these 12 were in. We face new challenges. We face unknown circumstances as Christians. We have new periods of life. We have uh, situations in our family relationships conditions at work, new trials of the type we've never seen before. We're not always quick to remember how fully Jesus has brought us to this day. How he has been faithful to us completely to bring us right here. And whatever circumstance you're in, he has you there for his purpose. And He alone can satisfy you through that situation. He will care for you. He will feed you. I don't know, we're like the disciples, right? What can I do? (laughs) The need is so big. But God is able to use your time. He's able to use your talents. He's able to use your money. He's able to use your energy that you yield to Him. So make yourself available and be amazed by His grace as He uses you in His kingdom. I have to learn this over and over. The sufficiency of Christ is something we have to continually practice and learn. So, I just have a have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And whatever he does is right. And he will supply your every need. Turn a little bit. Let's go to John chapter 6. 
I mentioned, I think it was last week, maybe it was a couple of weeks ago about Luther and Zwingli in their debate or their discussion about the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Now, I wasn't there. I don't, I don't, even, I don't think anybody here was there. We read about it. You know, history is always written by the victors, and so uh, whoever writes the book gets to determine exactly how history played out, you know. But I, I have a note in here that in John chapter 6, we get an inkling of where it is that from our perspective, Luther has a misunderstanding. John chapter 6 I'm going to read an extended verses, beginning of verse 26. Now, um, this is the bread of life that happens that Jesus, the, the sermon that Jesus preaches, John chapter 6, right after he feeds the 5,000. And so beginning in verse, I'm going to begin in verse 26. Jesus answered them. They said, Rabbi, when did you come here? Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. See, they're missing the point of the miracle of feeding of 5,000. You just want another sandwich. You just want another piece of fish, right? Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to them, to him, what must we do to, to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, to him Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing a all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Look at verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. It's, he's reiterating, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And there's a dispute, verse 52, verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him, 
as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. And then the next verse, whoever feeds, whoever, uh, feeds on this bread will live forever. Just a few comments. Um, what Luther really built his argument upon is the phrase, this is my body that is in the, uh, as Jesus establishes the Lord's Supper. But Luther, you remember Luther, when he stood with his life at stake, he said, here I stand, unless I'm convinced by the word of God, I am not going to recant what I believe, right? Luther's willing to die for the word of God. And Jesus says, this is my body. And that was his argument. If the word of God says it, I believe it. That was his argument. Luke 22, 19 and 20. This is uh, Luke's record of uh, establishing the Lord's Supper. He took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup is poured out for you in the new covenant, is the new covenant in my blood. I was, uh, I, I read a devotion on the Lord's Supper this week that helped me understand Luther. We would not hold to Luther's position of the physical presence of Christ in the elements in some way or another. He rejected the Catholic view but held his uh, Roman view. Here's in the uh, Luther's shorter catechism Here's, here's what the commentaries or the uh, devotion said. For Luther, the Lord's Supper is not just about the real presence of Christ. The main thing in the Lord's Supper, Luther teaches in, the shorter, uh, in his uh, smaller catechism, are the words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. Specifically, the point of the Lord's Supper is Jesus gave himself for you, his people. That was what was important in the Lord's Supper for Luther. And this devotion went on. He said, we talk about receiving Christ as something that happened back at our conversion. And we must, right? We must. There must be a conversion to be a Christian. There's got to be a beginning. But he continues, we also, also in the Lord's Supper, we're brought back to the gospel again and again where we can continue to receive Christ. Our Christianity tends to be internalized, a matter of my feelings, my inner life, my personal opinions, and we look inward for our salvation, whereas the reformers, Calvin and Luther, stressed how salvation is outside of ourselves, accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a difference, right? Instead of going inward, we look outward for our salvation. Our salvation is outside of us. It's in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. In our confession, we don't care what... In our confession, right? We, we're Baptists. And the outward elements in the Lord's Supper, bread and wine, duly set apart for the use appointed by Christ, bear such a relation to the Lord crucified that in a true sense although in terms used figuratively, they're sometimes called by the names of the things they represent, namely the body and blood of Christ 
even though in substance and nature they still remain truly and only bread and wine, as they were before setting up, being set apart for their special use. So nothing changes here, right? The elements are physical. Christ's presence is spiritual. And he's with us as we partake. In fact, the official confession of statements of faith that the Lutherans use reject Lutherans, uh, Luther's consubstantiation, his, his view of the physical presence. They don't believe the bread and the wine become something new at all. So on the night that the Lord was arrested, as Paul gives to us, the Lord Jesus established the Lord's Supper. And it's in the Lord's Supper that the deacons are going to come forward. Just to read our initial uh, introductory statement out of our confession, the Lord's Supper was instituted by the Lord on the same night in which he was betrayed. It is to be observed in his churches to the world's end for a perpetual remembrance of him and to show forth the sacrifice of himself in his death. It was instituted also to confirm saints in the belief that all the benefits stemming from Christ's sacrifice belong to them. It's meant to promote spiritual nourishment and growth in Christ and to strengthen the ties that bind them to all the duties they owe to him. The Lord's Supper is also a bond and pledge of the fellowship which believers have with Christ and with one another. So, I know that's maybe a little technical for you, but this is a means of grace for believers only. Uh, if you're a member of Providence in good standing, we invite you. If you're a visitor, uh, and you've not been here when we did the Lord's Supper, you're a member of a church, a baptized believer, member of a, an evangelical church, you could take the Lord's Supper where you are. Uh, you, are uh, have, you confess your sins and live a life of uh, uh, glory to God. Feel free to join us. We ask those who continue to visit to talk with an elder, to uh, help us know your situation. Uh, and uh, if you're not a believer, we ask that you observe the unity that we experience, the community that we have because of our union with Christ and our salvation.